So all those people are in our uh, in our thoughts and prayers. Let's pray as we begin. We have a handout. Is what is that about? We just want to know if you're going to read from the Bible today, Randall. <laughs> I am going to read from the Bible. Today. Okay, good, good, good. Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather as, as a people, and uh, just we thank you for the opportunity to, for this class that we can take a look at uh, places that inspire us in Israel and why you chose that land to begin with uh, to launch uh, your church and your people, Father. We just ask your blessings this morning on this time and all the people that are on this list that need our prayers and need our comfort. In Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, come on in. There's the front row is wide open. Only uh, Brother Adams is down here. So if you want to come to the front. <clears throat> okay, last week, Paige, is Paige here today? Paige asked the question about uh, the Roman count. You can relay this, other Dr. Smith, okay? You, you got to capture this. Uh, Paige asked a great question about Roman dating, Julian calendar versus the Gregorian calendar. Uh, man, can you do a nerd deep dive on that subject? The bottom line is, and I think Randall's going to talk about this a little bit. Well, I don't know as much about coins as you do, so you say what you want to say. But uh, dating was done by titles given to the particular emperor. So the coinage would not have like we have today, 1979. Um, so. For instance, they just found recently in Jerusalem a coin uh, connected to one of the Caesars that they had never found before in Jerusalem. Um, so they're taking the titles of that on that coin and they're linking it with the emperor. It's Nero, the one that was found in Jerusalem. Is this the one? Yeah. It was just found recently, right? Yeah. Uh, so you don't see any dating on it. But uh, it wasn't until the 6th century that... Uh, it wasn't until the 6th century and then a thousand years later until it all synced up to have what we have now in B.C. and A.D. So it's been this long evolutionary process and part of it is because people were trying to understand how the Roman Empire understood uh, solar and lunar rhythms on planet Earth. And so they were trying to find, uh, did they understand leap year, for instance? So it's actually pretty messy. It was a great question that she asked. Um, Okay, Randall's going to pick up uh, and talk about Caesarea, which I'm going to focus on in the sermon. So I won't say anything about Caesarea, but one of the things Randall and I want to do is we want to give you enough background so that as you're reading the Bible, you see things filled in that you'd never seen before. The analogy I use is that when you understand the background of the Bible, it's like going from regular television to HD. You remember the first year HD became a thing? And all of us were like, how did we ever watch TV before HD? Like, how did we, never mind black and white to color, right? But HD was like, understanding the background of the Bible is what helps the Bible become the clearest picture of what God has been doing in history. So I gave you a little handout. You don't have to read it now, but it, it does go deeper into uh, the different backgrounds, the different sects, uh, S-E-C-T-S. I always have to spell that when I'm teaching freshmen at Lipscomb. Um, but just to give you a sense of Paul's journey that takes him to Caesarea, it's, it's incredible the way that Jesus brought him out of a very particular story. So here's the quick background I want to give you. I talked about this two weeks ago when we were talking about God's love for cities in Jerusalem. I did it super on the fly quick. Um, within the first century world of Jesus, Almost every group of people were asking the same question, but they were coming to different answers. Uh, the scholar who's written the most about this is a guy named N.T. Wright. If you've never read his stuff before, he's written some really long stuff, and then he's come along and written some cliff notes, short versions of that. Randall and I can get you, get you that, uh, those titles. But he's the most prolific uh, background historian slash theologian of the 20th century. A lot of people call him the Michael Jordan of New Testament scholarship. He's just considered the very best. So he was the one who brought into focus the significance of this for anybody who studies the Bible. And this is what he says. Wright says, within the first century world of Jesus, there were many different narrative options for how you could live your life. Many different stories. 
And if you weren't paying attention closely, you wouldn't be able to tell the differences. But then he goes on, and, he, and he, in a very succinct way, he talks about the options that were available to people who lived in the first century. Just like today, I would argue, we have different narrative options. How do you understand US history? How do you understand world history? How do you understand the US in light of world history? There are different ways. And usually, you know those arguments because the public schools argue about them when it comes to textbooks. That's how you figure out what narratives are out there, right? Not even taking a position, just naming the tension that exists in society. So here's what Wright says. All of these different groups are asking the same question, but they're coming to very different conclusions. And when you understand those stories, the Jesus story becomes even more compelling. So you start with Paul's original narrative, the story of the Pharisee. So the question is, how should we live faithfully uh, in light of the Torah, in light of God's revelation? The Pharisees double down on moral purity. So their answers, uh, the Pharisees, their answer is, we need to purify Jerusalem. The Sadducees, without getting into the theological difference of these two, because there are significant theological differences, but the Sadducees, practically speaking, or in terms of society, they realized, look, if you can't beat them, join them. We, we've survived all these other empires. We may as well flourish and make the best of what we can. So they were willing to compromise so that the Jewish people could flourish because they had known genocide, they had known murder, they had known heartache. The Essenes, uh, these are the John the Baptist-like folks. Some people believe John the Baptist may have been a part of an Essene community. Um, there's not clear historical evidence of that, but some of you know the story of Qumran, where we had a bunch of scrolls discovered. Um, and again, if you go to Israel with us, you'll get to experience that. It's fascinating. But the Essenes are just like the Pharisees, except they don't want to stay in Jerusalem. So the Essenes want to purify and create a morally pure society, but they don't want to do it in the context of the city because they believe the city is corrupt. And then the Zealots, um, of which I have many family members who would identify with this uh, particular group, these are the sons of thunder in Jesus' 12 disciples. These are the guys who believe that the way you solve the biggest problems in the first century is to start war with violence so that God would then be forced to intervene. Um, now, you've got a whole other population called the vulnerable. I don't even have them on here, but these are the poor, these are the sick, these are the demon-possessed, uh, these are those who have been isolated. But the main narrative options, meaning the main stories that were out there as you're growing up in Palestine, here's what it means to be a faithful child or person of God. The main four narratives are the Pharisee, the Sadducee, the Essenes, and the Zealots. And again, in that handout, I, I, I give you a lot more information. So Paul comes out of the, the Pharisee context, and he names that in Acts 26 uh, and, and how far he's come. But this is what makes the Jesus story so compelling to me. Because Jesus had these other options growing up in Nazareth. He knew these other stories. So when he goes public at the age of 30, and he becomes this itinerant, prophetic, kind of rabbinic teacher of the kingdom of God, he's always aware of how these stories are at work. In fact, I would argue you can't really understand the parables fully until you understand how Jesus is engaging these four stories. So Jesus names those stories, he critiques them, but then this is what I love the most about Jesus. He offers people who come out of those stories a very different way of being a human being. Okay, now this is Christianity 101. How you define the word gospel shapes everything. What you think I mean when I say gospel, or what I think you mean when you say gospel, it shapes everything else. So when Jesus preaches this thing called the kingdom of God, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he says it over 125 times. Kingdom, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God. When Jesus uses this phrase, he is talking about what God desires humans to experience in full covenant life with God and with God's people. So when Jesus says gospel, or when the writers of the New Testament say gospel, 
They don't just mean what happens to you when you die. They mean the full reign of God ushered through a human person on earth as it is in heaven so that all of those people under the influence of the kingdom of God would flourish to be the human God always meant them to be. So the Jesus option then, as John 1 describes so poetically and philosophically, the Jesus opera, uh, modus operandi is not moral piety, although Jesus is moral and ethical. The primary story for Jesus is not compromise so you can flourish. It's not separate. It's not wage war. We have no evidence of Jesus ever uh, re resorting to violence as we use the word violence. But the Jesus opera, uh, modus operandi is incarnation, suffering, love in order to redeem all the other stories. Does that make sense? So incarnation means God becomes flesh and skin so that he can expose all these other shallow ways of living to invite people in to a deeper way of experiencing God and their neighbors. Oh, and their enemies, because Jesus has a lot to say about enemies too, right? Um, so, <clears throat> as Randall is going to describe Caesarea to us, I think it's important to remember that Paul's greatest accomplishment, in my opinion, Paul's greatest accomplishment is that when he becomes a person of the way, which is Acts way of saying the kingdom of God, kingdom of God. When, when Paul becomes a person of the way and he has to leave behind this identity of moral purity, the temptation for Paul is to always go back and to be who he used to be. Can anybody identify with that? <laughs> the temptation is, the book of Galatians is a great example. No one but a recovering Pharisee could write Galatians. Right? It is a hard, harsh book with all kinds of edges. So as Paul is now engaging the rest of the world and he's meeting all of these different people of all these different backgrounds and skin color and political beliefs and beliefs about God, his greatest accomplishment, I believe, is that he stays so close to the Jesus model and he never reverts back to his old strategies. And you see that the most, I think, um, in Caesarea. Okay. Any questions or comments about that before Randall teaches us about Caesarea? Stephen. I personally don't think so. I think he was aware of it. I think he was enough off the grid, though. Again, Nazareth, working in Sepphoris, probably, this large city next to Nazareth. I think he and his dad were stonemasons or wood carpenters in Sepphoris. I think he was enough off the grid that his primary influence was synagogue and synagogue life. Um, and the Bible tells us just enough that we know he was deeply entrenched in the, the Torah story. But we know, less, we know more about Paul's training than we do about Jesus' training, right? So I kind of come to the edge of that obviously make room for the Holy Spirit, but Luke says he grew in wisdom and stature. Um, and I think, I'm going to sound Catholic, I think it's his mama who shapes his theology the most. And I don't need the Bible for that. I need my own life experience of how mama shaped their kids. The Gospel of Luke goes out of its way to say Mary shapes Jesus' theology at a profound level. Exactly. Her experience. The magnificent, absolutely. So great question. I think he was aware though. Yeah. In terms of percentage of the population that might be in each one of these. And oh man. In the total population. You know, and I realize we don't have specific. Yeah. So first century, right. I'm not sure about Israel proper. First century estimates are about 80 to 90,000 in Jerusalem. Uh, I've never seen an actual code or chart about how this would break down. But obviously this would be a very small percentage because they have all the power, all the education, all the wealth. 6,000 6, Pharisees. Um, and then these, these numbers would certainly be larger than the first two. Uh, but your largest population are the ones I referred to as the, the vulnerable class because poverty was such an issue, issue in Israel. So would they be a majority? 
Uh, oh, absolutely. Like Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount, right? Jesus is preaching this incredible, what we would call Matthew 5, 6, and 7. He preaches this incredible, and the picture that Matthew gives us is he's preaching to the masses of poor, sick, hurting people. And these guys are just kind of overhearing, like, how is our power being threatened because he cares about this vulnerable class? Uh, if you think about India and the caste system, this isn't as harsh, but we always have tears in societies. And Jesus kind of comes from the bottom up and preaches that kingdom of God message. Great question. Anything else? Saison? Saison? <laughs> no. You had to be in first service to get that joke. Yeah. You'll get it when you hear the sermon. Um, I just wanted to take take you to a, a few pictures. This is just I don't understand you. Um, this one was found this week in the in the Negev. It's three thousand years old. That's a picture of Cleopatra. I'm going to get really close to you for oh, a second. Sorry. They're podcasting. This now. is uncomfortable. Yeah, you can do that. <laughs> This one is uh, this one was found down by the Dead Sea by by a Jewish woman who is a retired school teacher, and her gift to the world is that uh, she believes in Tikkun Olam, which means that all it's the Jewish it's what the Jews are left to do. God created the heavens and the earth in six days. On the seventh day, he rested because in the Jewish mind, he left things for them to do, and so her gift to the world is she picks up trash around the Dead Sea and she thought this was a bottle cap when she picked it up this is Augustus what you need to see what you and I, I don't know the dating of Augustus was the first Caesar and but the day but what you need to see about this is this word over here divivus which means Augustus the divine Augustus the divine uh, this one is the one that was found two weeks ago in uh, it's they found it on Zion at an archaeological dig. Literally, what they do is they will just take a room and they will pull the floor up and start digging anywhere they go in in Israel, in Jerusalem, uh, or uh, really anywhere in Israel. You find things like this, and this is from the dating from the time of Nero. And this one says Divus also, but there are coins uh, in Nero's time that say Read Divus because. It was said that Nero uh, came back to life. That's hinted at in the book of Revelation. All right, now. Um, so this is, um, this is a picture. And, I, you know, it's hard to even find a map that has uh, Caesarea on it. This has to be a later map because Caesarea really did not become a town until about 35 B.C. And Herod, when he went on his great big... Uh, expansive uh, building program he built uh, Caesarea up and notice down here is let me find my little deal down here is Gaza that has never been Jewish the Gaza has never been Jewish remember they put David I mean put Samson down there uh, a Danite the tribe of Dan was supposed to capture that and they didn't does anybody know where the tribe of Dan ended up because the Gazans the Philistines killed the tribe of Dan Dan literally ended up way up here north of the lake. And we'll see that in Tell Dan, which is where we visit. Let me say this, too. My wife told me to say this. Um, so you better do it. Yes. And she's correct. I got to give it to her. This class is not an advertisement uh, for you to go to Israel. And I don't want anyone to feel bad about not going to it. We, lo we love it. Uh, it, it's it for for me. Um, I had been to Israel all my life, and when I got there, it was just the reality of being there. And uh, so, you know, I, I don't want you to feel bad if you're not planning on going. That's not that's not the the deal. The reason we're doing this class is because when you're there, you just realize that Scripture comes alive, and I can I promise you, I can take you there through these pictures if you can follow what I'm saying. Uh, so that's, that's the reason for this class. Many of you will never go, and I hope by doing this, you know, I never, I was 40 years old before I ever saw a picture of the Jordan River. And I thought, you know, the Jordan River, how, the mighty Jordan, remember Joshua crossed the Jordan River and, 
and the, they carried the ark through the Jordan River, and that had to just be, you know, how in the world is, but well, I mean, you see, it was, it's like a, we call that a stream or a brook in Tennessee, and that's what the Jordan River is. So I think it is valuable. There's a value in us knowing and seeing. Um, I just wanted, I, I just want you to see, so Ashdod, Escalon, this is where Caesarea is. I can't even read that because it's so small. This is Haifa, Mount Carmel. Um, and then this is Acre. In Acts, it refers to Ptolemaeus. Uh, that is the city of Acre. Uh, then you go on up, you got Tyre and Sidon and Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus would be way up here. So when Saul received, he was a Jew, and he would go, they would travel to Jerusalem Every male over the age of 12 was supposed to go to Jerusalem three times a year. Now, I don't know how far that is, but that's a long way to Jerusalem, down to Jerusalem, Dead Sea, Jerusalem. Um, that's a long way, and they were supposed to go. So he had done that many, many times. He's, he's under the tutelage of Gamaliel in Jerusalem, and then he receives, I, I think he was on the fast track, to being a member of the Sanhedrin, maybe even being the chief priest. Paul was a very well-studied person. And he received papers from the chief priest to go to Damascus. They had intercepted letters to go to, Ma to Damascus to um, grab up some people who were following Christianity as opposed to Judaism. So you see how far Damascus is. Then when he, when he, when he gets knocked off his horse in Damascus, whoa, 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 when he gets knocked off his horse in Damascus, he comes all the way down here to Mount Sinai, to Mount Horeb, read Galatians. That's where he goes in the spirit of Elijah and spends three years down there. I'd always been taught reading and studying and da-da-da, and I'm telling you, look, look it up and see how much in touch Paul was with the Spirit. The Spirit of God would teach him things. Christ taught him. I think Paul and Christ had many, many conversations. He says in Galatians, this did not come from man. This was revealed to me. It was revealed to me. It occurs to me, when you did the, Paul, the Cezanne uh, um, Picasso thing this morning, it occurred to me, Peter is also receiving those those deals. There's a, there's a thing here in Acts where Peter is living in Joppa, and I can't, I don't know where that is anyway. But Joppa is only a few miles from Caesarea. Right there it is. Is that there it is? So Peter's living in Joppa, and he's receiving all these revelations. Remember, he received the, the dream in Joppa where the sheet came down and all the unclean animals were on the sheet, and somebody said, Kill and eat. He goes, No. And then they said, Peter, bacon. So he goes for it. I mean, so you know, that that's Joppa. That's Joppa. And the the Cornelius, Cornelius, the the, the uh, Roman centurion. Uh, well let's just let's take a look at some of these some of these things, if you will. Um, I guess the first one that I want to want to look at is Acts eight forty. Just for a second. Uh, Josh referred to this in his sermon, but I'll I'll touch on something else. This is a Philip's um, Philip the Evangelist. He's the only person in the New Testament called an evangelist. Um, look at um, well, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, Philip was the same guy in Acts six one, one of the seven that was chosen. Remember that the apostles uh, said we're not doing enough for the widows and the orphans, and we're not especially not covering the widows who are Gentiles, who speak Greek. So they picked seven guys who could speak Greek, literally. And that's what, one of the seven. So Philip was one of those seven. Um, he lives in Caesarea after he evangelized Philip the Ethiopian eunuch. And uh, then he had his daughters. Um, where are his daughters? That's, that's 21, right? Acts 21. We were going to read 8, but I've already told that story. Um, Let's see. Does anybody have? I don't have that. Where is that? Where is his daughters? 21, 8, and 9. Okay, twenty-one, eight, and nine. Yeah. Look at this one just for a second. 
We continued our voyage from Tyre and landed at Ptolemaeus, that's Acre, up here. <clears throat> and we were greeted by the brothers and stayed with them for a few days. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed in the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who had the gift of prophecy. And I've written, and this is sad, and I apologize, but I've written, and this was obviously before I grew up, uh, they must have been able to prophesy about recipes in the kitchen. That's really, I'm, I'm sorry, I apologize for that, but I wrote that in my Bible. <clears throat> it's a confession, I'm confessing. I'm, t I'm just telling you, I'm a changed man. I, I, I'm a changed man. <laughs> it's in my Bible. I've just read. <laughs> no, she's staying for the whole show. Got it. Okay. <laughs> um, but I'm, I'm struck by how many times Paul... Paul says, hey, guys, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to Jerusalem. And all these people keep going, Paul, if you go back to Jerusalem, they're going to kill you. And he goes, no, no, no. The Holy Spirit told me to go to Jerusalem, and then I'm going to Rome. He's been told that. Uh, look at this one. Keep reading with me. After we were there a number of days, a prophet, Agabus, came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt. He tied his own hands and feet with it. And he said, the Holy Spirit says... In this way, the Jerusalem, Jerusalem will bind you over of this belt and hand you over to the Gentiles. Um, but yet Paul continued to Jerusalem. I'm just so struck by the fact that this guy knows what's going to happen to him, and yet he keeps doing it. Let's, let's, keep taking, let's take a look at some pictures. This is Caesarea as it is today. Um, Really, the excavations of Caesarea only started... Remember, Israel came back to the land in 1948. Actually, some of the excavation of this had already begun. It began uh, early 1900s. Um, this is an aerial view, and the reason I had this, and it's a terrible picture, is so you can see... You see these... This is uh, actual big stones that are left. Uh, Herod built a seaport, a protected seaport. The stones were 50 feet long, 9 feet high, and 13 feet wide. And they, they, how they did that, I don't know, but they took them out there and they stacked them on top of one another and built this incredible uh, seaport. That's an aerial view and that's even worse than the picture before. This is a helicopter view um, and you can see, number one, up here you see this is an aqueduct I'm sorry. Oh, I'm, I have I have uh, more pictures of this aqueduct, but this just gives you an aerial view. This aqueduct right here stretches all the way to Mount Carmel, 23 miles, to bring him fresh water. That's what he wanted. Um, this was where his palace was. The pool that I'll show you in a minute is a swimming pool inside of his house that was fed by this aqueduct, and that's where he lived. Now, what th this is what's crazy, y'all. Herod the Great had a lot of power, but Herod the Great was not the power in this area. Who was the power in this area? Rome. Herod the Great was a vassal of Rome. He was giving all of Judea, you take care of Judea, we don't want it. But there were uh, Festus, the governors, those guys were from Rome. Pontius Pilate lived in Caesarea Philippi. Uh, any Roman official would stay in uh, Herod's temple. That's, that's the way it was. Matter of fact, Paul, it says in Acts, was under house arrest in Herod's temple. Paul must have thought he had died and gone to heaven. Um, this is that, um, um, what do you call that thing? Colosseum. No, it's not really a Colosseum. This is an amphitheater, uh, and it doesn't look today like it did then, but you can imagine seeing plays and you're looking at the Mediterranean Sea as you're, as you're doing that. This hippodrome, this is a hippodrome where they raced. That was not uncovered until 1990. As a matter of fact, the, they estimate that the city of Caesarea, the biblical city of Caesarea is 5,500 acres of which five acres has been excavated. That's the way it is. All right. Uh, more. This, uh, that is a, a power plant desalinization plant, which appears in every picture, by the way. 
but you can see here, see the breakwaters, how it, how it came out. There was another one that came out here, and it was a protected harbor. And this is where all the ships, because the water there is, uh, as it comes into the coast, it's very, very rough and choppy, but it was protected. Uh, another picture of the breakwaters. This is the warehouses right next to the site, uh, the amphitheater. There's a picture of the amphitheater. They still do plays and whatever. Here's the problem with, with this is that, and I forget which historian tells us, the whole city was overlaid with white marble. You don't see any white marble. All this whole deal was overlaid with white marble. There'll be pieces and fragments of white marble, but it had, every bit of it had white marble. And it's been looted and taken away over the years. This is the amphitheater seating at the Hippodrome. More, uh, that's part of Herod's palace as it juts out. This is the palace over here, the breakwaters, the amphitheater down here. So he could either go to a horse race or he could go to a, um, a play and see something almost all the time. He ran his government from, from his house, pretty much. Um, the Hippodrome, more warehouses. This is the swimming pool inside of his house. Wasn't an infinity pool, but pretty close, pretty close. Now, notice the mosaics. There are mosaics all over the place, which just shows you the level of intricacy. This is what I was telling you. They found mosaic tile uh, in the ru uh, rubble from the temple and recreated mosaics from the actual uh, temple uh, of Herod 2,000 years ago. Um, that's another pool. Let's see. Here's the... Just kind of gives you an overview. This is the aqueduct. Stretches for 23 miles, carrying water. It. I forget how the gradient is, but the gradient is amazing. A quarter of an inch to a foot. It's amazing. This is the famous pilot stone. This they actually dug this up, and it. it uh, I can't even remember what it, what it said. Uh, the next slide, uh, Tiberium Pontius Pilate Prefectus Judea. So Pontius Pilate lived there. Now get think about this. Uh, Let's do Herod and Pontius Pilate just for a second. So Pontius Pilate was, was Roman. Everywhere he traveled, he would travel with armed Roman soldiers, probably a, a cohort of 200 men. They would travel carrying the Roman standard on these big white horses, and they would ride in every, everywhere they went. Um, and so it was pomp and certain. They lived here, but when, they, when the feasts and festivals were happening in, Jer in Jerusalem, they would go there and just and uh, scare the people. Just let you know we're in charge. Antonia Fortress is built right beside of the temple, so they stayed in Antonia Fortress, overlooking the temple constantly. Um, Herod the Great. Back to Herod the Great, just a second, because remember Jacob and Esau. Do you remember when the prophet was it Nathan that came to their mama and said? She said, if it is to be, she, here's what she said, if it is to be, I can't even look this up, if it is to be, why am I this way? Literally, she's saying, these babies are killing me. And if something doesn't happen, I'm going to die. And the prophet said, two nations are at war within you, and one will rise up to serve the other one. Then Jacob and Esau were born. Jacob who later becomes Israel, Esau, which is one of my favorite biblical characters because his name literally means red and hairy. Um, Esau is an Edomian, back way down near the Negev, near the Sinai. He's an Edomian. And Edomians are lifelong enemies of Israel. Remember, he renounced his birthright well, that doesn't sound like a bad thing. What he's in essence saying is, I don't want your religion. I don't want any part of your religion. I'm done. 
And so the Idumeans were constant enemies of Israel. So why would Rome pick and Herod the Great was an Idumean? Why would Rome pick Herod the Great? In your, who said in your face? Yeah, that's it. In your face. We can do whatever we want. It's in your face. Uh, which goes back to Paul's question last week. I'm kind of jumping. But Paul's basic question last week is, at what point in time did, did Israel become this hated people? When did all that happen? Does anybody know? Rogers Clayton came up to me after class. He has the answer. And I, I believe it with everything I've got. He says, you know, there are 14 million Jews on the planet. And they're hated. They're hated. And I don't get why they're so hated. And Rogers said, it's when, Jesus, it's when God looked at them and said, you are my chosen people. And you will be my chosen people. I ask you to serve me. And if you will, I will be your God and you will be my people. And at that point in time, the devil said, these guys we're going to take out. And I really believe that. I believe that Israel faces a lot. Israel does a lot, enough stuff to be stupid that everybody kind of, but the underlying deal there is that it's from, it's from the devil. I really believe that. Yes. Well, I agree. And not, and not getting rid of all the people like God said. They left enemies. But there's, there's also, I can't help doing this, Hilton, every time I read, and I, I read um, news stories daily. Like, I don't know if y'all get, like, Yahoo News or go. If you just go down and look, how many of those stories is about something related with Israel? It is inordinate based on the amount of people... Uh, of that race that there are in the world. There's a reason for that. It has to be. It's got it's something beyond what the mind can comprehend. Anybody else have a question or comment on that? Is there an arrogance associated with that? Is that what you're saying? The arrogance caused jealousy that I I agree with that. And it's easy to say, you know, like us, we can get arrogant because we think we know or we understand, but it's still Right. But, but that doesn't explain why uh, that few people and they ha they have thirty percent of the world's wealth. Why they have all of the have all of the uh, uh, movie theaters? I mean, why 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 are they that high in banking and dot? It doesn't that that can only be explained other ways. So. Nobel, Nobel Prize winners, more than any other country in the world. Israel has more Nobel Prize winners. The greatest percentage of doctors on the planet, Israel. They might have a right to be arrogant. Yeah. <laughs> right. And family is everything. It, it's a fasc it's a fascinating story. Yes. I was just going to add to kind of like the brother said here that you know, they were chosen and they, they kind of misrepresented that. Oh, absolutely. They were chosen to be a light to the people, and uh, that's not a whole lot different, I suppose, for us. I agree. I agree. Anybody else? How much more time have we got in here? Ten minutes. Ten minutes. Well. I would just say this. So Paul goes on to Jerusalem. When he gets to Jerusalem, I'm just going to tell the story. Paul goes on to Jerusalem. He's hated uh, by, by the people there. Why is he hated? Oh, goodness, where is that? Acts 11. Yeah, look, look at Acts 11. And this is, just, this is to Peter. Look at Acts 11. And this would, this would also apply with Paul. Start at verse 1. The apostles and the brothers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, 
The I mean, the circumcised believers criticized him. Who would that be? The circumcised believers. The Jews. More specifically, the Pharisees. They criticized him. And they said, you went into a house. This is in response to Cornelius. You went into a house of uncircumcised men and you ate with them? And then Peter explains himself. But notice the Pharisees. The point about the Pharisees is they cannot see the kingdom of God for seeing you're either right or you're wrong. And this is the way we see you're right and you're not right. And they don't care about the kingdom of God. That's what blows me away. So Paul confronts these guys, jumping back to 21 or 22. Paul confronts these guys in Jerusalem and he gets thrown before the Sanhedrin. And Paul is, this is his old stomping grounds. And he knows that they, they're doing all that. And he says, I'm just going to get them in a fight between themselves and they won't ever make it. They won't figure it out. So he gets the Sadducees talking about, he mentions the resurrection of the dead, which the, the Sadducees do not believe in the resurrection of the dead. Pharisees do. And so he gets them arguing and it breaks out into a riot and the Romans come in and they take Paul. And where do they take him? They get him out of the city and he goes back to Caesarea and he's living there right there in Herod's house in Caesarea. This is what amazes me about Paul. So this is probably 57, 58. He dies. Uh, Josephus tells us that Paul and Peter were, were uh, executed in the summer of 63 in Rome. So he, he's on his way to die. But from here, he writes Philippians, Colossians, Ephesians, and Philemon, the prison epistles. Now, it may not have been from me. He spends two years here and two years in Rome. So he wrote those letters somewhere doing this. He's done, the point is, he's done everything he can do. He's preached to as many people as he can preach. Now he leaves writings that we still toil over and think about and worry about today. And I, I was reading those writings um, this week. Just, yeah, reading those writings. Could, could y'all just, as we close, somebody take, the, take these verses. I just want to, I want to read them in succession. So if you can, we'll read this verse. Just raise your hand. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. Okay. Philippians 3, 20 and 21. Okay. Colossians 3, 1 through 4. Somebody. Okay, Chad. Ephesians 2, 6 and 7. Okay. Colossians 1, 24. Okay. Philippians 1, 27. We're almost at the end. Okay. Colossians 1, verse 10. In Ephesians 2, verse 10. This will be the great climax. Who wants to do that? Doug, will you do that? Yeah. Ephesians 2, verse 10. Let's, let's, as we read these, let's just think about a man who is in chains. As Josh said this morning, he's tethered. This is not a bad place. He's not got a bad gig. But at the same time, he knows he'll never be free. He's going to die. Okay? Start with Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and had believed in him, were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. This is the pledge of our inheritance toward redemption as God's own people to the praise of his glory. Okay. Philippians? Philippians 3. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Colossians 3. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Ephesians 2. 
God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in the kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Colossians 1. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Do, do that one more time. That's just, do that. Listen. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you. I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Uh, Philippians? Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, hmm. so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Colossians? Doug. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. The word workmanship there is poema. We are God's poetry. God wrote a poem, and it's you. Adios. See you next week. <clears throat> Oh, really? It's Carrera Marvel, but you know how valuable it is. And so that's why it's all gone. Is that during the Crusades? That it was taken away? No, it was in the Byzantine era and everything that came again. And your stone, brave water, what they could do is. And that hydraulic cement was from Italy. You were going to sleep? No, it's good. It's good. It's good. You know, I wanted to say. Go down to that baptismal place. Oh, okay, great. My mom was actually Doug's first cousin. Oh, really? <laughs> great. Well, there must be some Smith thing. Oh. Yeah, it must be. Okay. <laughs> anyway, this was fascinating. Well, thank you. Um, are, are you familiar with Ray Vanderlaan? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, I just wanted, because it, you know, we've been to several of his seminars, and I mean, it does just make it live. That's exactly right. And, That's exactly right. You know, if we if we can't get there because we're getting old, I don't. <laughs> you're not too, you're not too old. You need you're at the perfect age right now. John. Yes, good to meet yeah. you. Good to meet you. Yeah, we we uh, the last time we were Viking. I don't know. I don't have a no. I think it's Wil the Wilshire province in England. Oh, I'm a Wilshire. So that ain't. Is that your last name? Yes, Wilshire. Okay, I, yeah. I knew yeah. it was Randall. But uh, uh, we had a lady that was seventy-seven. She was from San Antonio. Oh, really? Last time. Yeah. yeah. And she well, now, made, do, do the groups actually go from Otter Creek? Is that we're taking the trip in 18, April of 18. It's the first 35 people that sign up. And who, who goes to kind of lead those? Well, Josh, Josh. Josh goes. Josh okay. will be, and then Lee Camp, who's a Bible professor at Lipscomb. But then we have also the best God in Israel. And you're from Texas? Yes. Morning Star Tours in Dallas does our work. Oh, okay. It's, okay. it's not the cheapest trip. It's, it's, it's a good trip. And it's safe. Oh, by far. I don't know why I care about safe anymore. How long is it? How many days? <laughs> Ten days.
which would be 11 from here. Sure, the church gives me five days for Oh, you'll build up enough goodwill by then. <laughs> and if you tell them you're going to Israel, I know it's, I know, it's a training April, trip. I can technically use that as my furthering education. April, like, go to Morningstar. It's all, we've got a whole website on Morningstar. How many people have signed up right now? I don't even know. Okay. I have. How much is it? Usually? Oh, yeah. It's expensive. It would be around for a couple. Uh, no, it's, four, it's 49 plus anything. It's, it's expensive, but it's for you don't pay for anything once you get. Oh no, yeah. Oh, that's fine. We, we've been we're going to New Zealand this this December, so we know expensive trips. <laughs> well, no, uh, no uh, air. I mean, no food. It's concierge, so once you pay that, you get picked up. Wine and dine. It's amazing. So, but all of this is on the Morning Star. Yeah, Morning Star Tours website. Just Google Josh Graves on there. That is. Hey, thank you. I've sure. looked, I, you know, we moved. Well, it's, been, it's been a few years. There, but there's no telling where this is. If I do. I borrowed your pen. Oh, no problem. Let's say nice You too. Nice to meet you. Yeah. Let me know if you need anything else. I got. A, I took a picture of it, so I got it. So. Good. Well, it's just so dry. I'm gonna wait till it cools off. But we need to get topsoil. I thought the sidewalk turned out well. I thought it was good. I like it. Never worked. Once you get everything in, it's going to look great. We'll get it. And they got to figure out the inside. <laughs> One step at a time.